When I was 19, I was in a car accident. My mother died in the car accident. My brother was severely injured and I was in the hospital for about two weeks. And I had been involved for a couple of years with Tibetan Buddhists in high school. They all came up to the hospital. They brought pictures of the Kagyu Rinpoche and the beads and everything, which blew the mind of the tiny country hospital I was in. And I thought I had an obligation as a good Buddhist to not feel. And so I practiced the shit out of my Tibetan Buddhist practices, mantra, visualization. And I tried to put on an example of what a good Buddhist responds to intense personal suffering with. The pain of losing a loved one is among the greatest sources of suffering in life. What can be done to escape this pain? And what is the right response to the problem of suffering in general? That problem, often referred to as theodicy, has puzzled some of the greatest minds in history, from Leibniz, who coined the term, to religious scholars from every faith trying to square their belief in a God of love and mercy with one who created suffering. In this episode, James Hughes, bioethicist, sociologist, and former Buddhist monk, compares his ideas with David Pierce's vision of a future filled not only with the absence of suffering, but with hyper-compassionate, hyper-intelligent, and hyper-productive people motivated by gradients of bliss. We discuss questions like, is achieving enlightenment and nirvana an esoteric journey, or simply an engineering problem with solutions involving cyborg implants and recombinant DNA technology? The central goal of Buddhism, as far as I can tell, is to free all beings from suffering. What are the dangers in the transition to making everybody, as you put it, a cyborg Buddha? (laughs) When we think about suffering, you can talk about just eliminating pain or trying to eliminate any aversive experience. And that's not really where Buddhism is is headed, although the kind of complete vision of nirvana is elimination of all suffering and pain. But in terms of what it means in a daily life, it's not as if you don't experience pain in your body or you don't experience occasionally disappointment of wanting things. But it's that you have a sufficiently spacious mind to not get bound up in your desires, not create unnecessarily desires that make you suffer, but also to allow experiences of pain and aversion to pass through without holding on to them. So you're not reinforcing and holding on to all those experiences. I don't know that very many people track that when they first approach Buddhism, certainly the early understandings of Buddhism was a very kind of negative nihilistic vision of what Buddhism was all about, the idea of absolute nirvana. And that's true for nirvana, but most of us aren't there yet. Yeah, I hear you wanting to emphasize the aspect of it, that it would be great if we could really guarantee that all beings would be blissful forever, but perhaps we should take a more cautious approach and say that what we should aim for is to at least keep beings from being trapped in hell states. Hell states, I think one of the things about Buddhist psychology that immediately attracted me when I was a teenager was Chogyam Trungpa's psychologization of the different mental, the different world of Buddhism. So you had the heavens, the demigods, the humans, animals, hungry ghosts, and hell states. Chogyam Trungpa went to great pains to say, these are metaphors for mental states that we all experience. And some people are born with 
happiness settings or mental health settings that keep them in one state or another disproportionately. I think one of the cyborg Buddha goals is to try to articulate what it means to have a model of mental health where you can diagnose, are you more of a health state kind of person? Or are you more of a hungry ghost kind of person? And figure out what technologies, meditations, behavioral practices are best for treating that particular kind of mind. Yeah, and you're very interested in different technological approaches to make this possible. What are those dangers? What do you worry about the most with regard to your own project, not necessarily complete abolitionism, but the transition to something more like your ideal? Back to the Buddhist worldview or the different realms. The Buddhists were always very clear that if you ended up being reincarnated as a god, although it was pleasant, it was also a distraction. And so one of the things I've always tried to emphasize in my dialogue with David Pierce in the Abolitionist Project, for instance, is that we do have to be concerned about ending up in a demotivated uh, state of bliss. The ordinary states of happiness of people today are ranked from zero to 10. Almost everything is positive until you get up to about nine, like the top second standard deviation of happiness people. But when you get up to about 10, the top 1% of happiness people, those people vote less, they do less well at their job, they make less income. All of that may be okay, necessarily, that I think we should all be working more and so forth. But the research reflects a certain demotivation when your happiness setting is cranked up to 10 all the time. And so I think if you crank it up to 11, then that concern becomes even more uh, acute. We just don't know yet whether you can as David would suggest, you could get people as motivated from 11 to 12 as you could from 5 to 10. And so one of the things I think about is that in the history of the human race, we used to have a lot more chronic illness and a lot more chronic pain as a part of our daily life. And we just had to suck it up because we didn't have good analgesics. But now we are a lot less sick. The average temperature in the last 50 years has gone down because we have less burden of chronic illness. And we have access to a lot better analgesics. And so ordinarily, people are used to less experience of pain. But we don't experience it that way. We experience the difference between having a toothache and not having a toothache as probably as severe as the experience of having a broken leg used to be and not having a broken leg or things like that. I just worry that the ability of the human mind to adapt to and recontextualize our ordinary realm of experience back into suffering and not suffering would mean that even if we were to crank ourselves up to greater degrees of bliss, that we would still have as much suffering. We'd still experience it as much suffering as we used to. So you mentioned before that you're skeptical about raising the hedonic ceiling, in other words, the best that we can ever feel, from, say, 10 to 11. And I think what you're saying is we don't yet know whether we could get people as motivated from 11 to 12 as we could from, I think you said, 5 to 10, or perhaps the fairer comparison is 5 to 6. Now, craving and desire are viewed by traditional Buddhists as the source of all suffering, but there's empirical evidence that motivation and pleasure are separate systems. In mouse experiments, they were able to tease apart the fact that uh, dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, only produces motivation and not pleasure. So in Kent Berridge's words, motivation and opiodergic pleasure are, quote-unquote, doubly dissociable. Now, what he means by that is in laboratory conditions, 
it is possible to turn on pleasure without desire and to turn on desire without pleasure. So that's why I think there is really good reason in principle to not assume that Buddhists have stumbled upon some kind of iron law of cravings, motivation and pleasure that says you can't have both motivation and pleasure or that you can't dial one up and the other down in whatever kind of relationship you want, at least in light of biotechnology. So Buddhism is good for a world in which you can't play with these things, you can't adjust them. But I think that it's not a scientific theory of how uh, monoamines in the brain work or neurophysiology itself. It's just kind of a, a rule of thumb. And by the way, if you or anybody wants to understand this really fascinating topic more, you can listen to our first episode with Kent Barrage. Um, he was part of the team who made this breakthrough discovery with motivation and dopamine. Before this time, researchers just thought that dopamine was responsible for producing pleasure. I mean, researchers thought this for a very long time, and you can still find uh, literature on the internet and videos that say erroneous things like dopamine makes you feel good. Dopamine doesn't make you feel good. It only motivates you. Again, though, the point is that we might even be able to create people who are simultaneously much more motivated and happy than even today's most sort of successful and perpetually dissatisfied individuals. I imagine someone in finance who is super motivated to make a ton of money just never feels like they're successful enough, but an overachiever. There's no reason to think you couldn't have somebody who was hyper-motivated to be a scientist or be in finance or to, to make art, but is also feeling very pleasurable while doing it. Now, we can't yet obviously produce this kind of person, but the research at least supports the notion that there's no reason in principle to assume that you can't ratchet up motivation and desire together or that more pleasure automatically will result in less motivation. And there's plenty of reason to think that we can increase both far beyond our current levels. These arguments get very contextualized though, right? Because if you're talking about trying to futilely increase somebody's hedonic set point, i.e. You know, their default state, how happy or sad they are on a daily basis. We all know some people are more like Eeyore and perpetually sad. And if you try to increase somebody's set point who's depressive with heroin or something like that, you're going to run into a situation where there are homeostatic mechanisms in place that downregulate mu opioid receptors are going to upregulate other receptors that sequester opioids and you're going to wind up with withdrawal so this is something that's very dangerous now we could run into other homeostatic mechanisms that we haven't even discovered yet in the process of trying to genetically engineer sentient beings to experience the range of hedonia that never dips below hedonic zero, which would be the cliff where you go from feeling neutral to suffering, then we may run into other mechanisms that stop us in the same way that opioids do. And so there's good reason to be skeptical, to be cautious about wanting to venture too quickly in an uncontrolled manner into some of these territories because you will get withdrawal, you will get even more suffering as a result of trying to break away from these Darwinian systems. Exactly. 
So is it a theoretical difference of opinion that you could never create an experience machine that would be extremely blissful all the time? Or is it more that you're just wanting to put the emphasis back on the fact this is a very difficult engineering problem and we don't know what kind of hurdles we're going to run into? I've been working on the Cyborg Buddha thing for way too long. And one of the reasons I'm kind of glad I didn't publish my original set of thoughts about this 10 years ago was that there's been so much cognitive neuroscience and related research on these topics. One is that we used to talk about dopamine as a happiness chemical, and really now we understand it as just an attention-orienting chemical. And so this gets to your point that it, it may be possible to disaggregate some of the things that we associate with pleasure and which cause addiction from the simple attention-orienting effects of dopamine. And so I do think it's an empirical question. We will gradually disaggregate all the things that we treat as one phenomena in the brain and figure out if they can be turned into separate levers for this project. But I, I would just also mention that my Evolution on the project of Cyborg Buddha has also introduced many other things that I think we need to be cranking up, many other levers on our virtues and our character that we need to be cranking up besides simply mood enhancement. And those are also the kind of balances to the dangers of mood enhancement. So, for instance, self-control. If you're lacking in self-control, which is at the core of almost every spiritual religious tradition's understanding of what having a good character is, then it really would be problematic to be cranked up to 11 on happiness. You're just happiness with everything, but you don't have any control over your behavior. If you're not a compassionate person, we understand that to be a flaw in our character, and it certainly interferes with our social functioning. If you're not sufficiently introspective to understand when you're biased or having confirmation biases in your decision or racist or something like that, that's a flaw in your character. So all these forms of wisdom that ancient traditions appointed us to play off of each other in a model of what a good character looks like, that's much more than just mood enhancement. Can you give us the LA5 version of the neo-Aristotelian capabilities approach? Sure. The big debate in ethics has always been, do you focus on the character of the person making the decision as the judge of right and wrong, or the consequences of the decision, or is it merely a matter of absolute right and wrong? So deontology versus virtue ethics versus consequentialism. And basically, you can't use in a public policy context anything but consequentialism. Unless you're the Taliban or ISIS, then you can say Sharia says X and we don't care what any of the consequences are, we're going to do X. Or we're going to go around and enforce virtue by beating people up if they don't wear their hijab. But almost all governments attempt to justify their public policy in terms of consequences. But the problem with consequences is if you just use utility, if you just use happiness, you find some pretty perverse results. You find that if people have very low expectations for their life, you can make them pretty happy with not doing anything. And in the context of a transhumanist future in which we'll have increasing control over mood enhancement, you can imagine a future where everybody had access to heroin and meth and nobody was unhappy about anything in that way or super heroin or super meth, but it would be a, a dystopian society. 
And so what we want is a way of trying to figure out the relationship between having a full and flourishing model of a human personality as the goal of public policy and having some way to measure those outcomes. So Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum and now many others have been putting forward what they call the capabilities model, which says, what are the human capabilities that we want to maximize through public policy? And they talk about things like the ability to play, the ability to learn, the ability to grow, the ability to communicate with others. That's a much more comprehensive model of what a good life looks like. And it's very hard in most of those cases to measure, but we get close in some fields. So for instance, in healthcare, instead of just measuring, are you happy with your post-surgical experience? We say, can you go to the bathroom? Can you do your own shopping? We have these measures of daily life abilities. And that's the kind of idea that we want to extrapolate into a broader set of measures for public policy. But really, those are lowercase c consequences, right? We're not able to measure the total increase in utility, hedonically speaking or otherwise, in the universe by your surgery. One consequence is that you can go to the bathroom. So what is the difference? Or is this just a way to get everybody on board who may not be on board with consequentialism? You're absolutely right. It's a way of attempting to articulate what kinds of consequences we want to maximize. Just in the case of a post-surgical experience, it may be that one patient is happy and the other is not, but the patient that's happy may not be able to do anything, and therefore it's a bad outcome from that point of view. The general point is we don't want to simply measure people's happiness or utility or self-satisfaction because it turns out to be a perverse measure in many cases. Yeah, not ultimate happiness. We're talking about the way people fill out a subjective satisfaction report at a particular time with all of these biases. The distinction between ultimate happiness and whatever kind of real happiness you imagine, that's precisely what we're talking about. If I develop my full human personality, as John Stuart Mill said, it's better to be a dissatisfied human than a satisfied pig. We have this imagination, yeah, if I was just so stupid that all I wanted was X, then I could be happy, but that's not the life I really want. We have to articulate and think about what are the lives we really want. Speaking of animals, can animals be cyborg Buddhas too? I have always been an advocate of what's called the Uplift Project, and in Citizen Cyborg, I attempted to articulate what I considered the relevant animals for that project, the animals that had attained a personhood status. So that would basically be great apes and cetaceans, possibly elephants, maybe parrots. And if you have that kind of a status, I would argue that you have the right to the kind of human flourishing that we would otherwise focus on children to provide. So if you had a child and you just said, I love you so much as a three-year-old, I never want you to change, then we would consider that a very bad parent. You have an obligation to our children to support their growing and flourishing into full adults and the capacity for decision-making and self-determination. And in the same way, I think we do have those obligations to animals and potentially to machine minds. And then one of the questions is, what is the full obligation then? In the case of machine minds, where we have a lot of debate about locking them down so that they never want anything more than to serve human beings. Is that what we really think a full and mature human mind should look like? If your parent was able to genetically engineer a kid to say, never want anything more than to serve other people's needs, we probably would think that was a bad decision. So I think we have to extend the Uplift Project to a model of what it means to have an obligation to other species and other minds. 
Do you draw the line at highly encephalized, big-brained mammals? This is one of the huge questions about the kind of anthropocentrism of our understanding of consciousness. And I'm a fan of Tononi's general project called the Integrated Information Theory of Consciousness, which tries to articulate a non-anthropocentric mathematical complexity understanding of how we might recognize conscious minds if we could take them apart and look at how all the pieces work, which probably we never will be able to do. But at least his theory would potentially allow something like the stock market to be conscious. And I don't know exactly where you go with that in terms of ethics. It's related to the panpsychism question. What if the entire universe is conscious to some extent? Does that mean it's harmful to kick a rock or something like that? But yeah, I do think we have to get away from anthropocentrism. Yeah, and you're also a Buddhist. Many Buddhists have alternative eating habits. Are you a vegan or a vegetarian? I'm not because I've always at least rationalized my eating of meat. I try to eat ethical meat. I certainly wouldn't eat a great ape or a human. And I preferred not to eat pork because pigs are smarter. But I think the degree of gradient that you have for your moral concern for animals is what we see in the Buddhist societies is, yes, uh, they generally thought that human beings could reincarnate into animals, but there was no Buddhist society that ever made it illegal to eat meat. And generally, the way the Buddhists got around it was they made the Muslims the butchers. So then they would get the bad karma, and you would you'd be able to eat as much meat as you want because the Muslims were getting all that bad karma. Yeah, that reminds me of the Jews who can't do business on Saturday, and then they find clever ways of <laughs> getting around it. But it seems to be a violation of the principle <laughs> to do that. I was always amused by the Dalai Lama's response. They challenged him and said, why do you prefer to eat beef? And he said, look, if you're going to eat meat, you just have to kill one cow. That's just one life. But if you eat chicken, you have to kill 10, 20 chickens to get as much meat as you get from one cow. So that's much worse. So eat beef. Relatively speaking, yeah, I totally agree. Better not to <laughs> kill any of them or cause any of them suffering. If you're choosing the least bad option, sure, eating beef would be superior. I'm a total fan. And I think we will all in the future look back on our meat eating past and ancestors as abhorrent. So I'm a total fan of stem cell based meat products as a transition to whatever future dietary habits we have. And I will enthusiastically embrace it. And I think in the short term, banning factory farming practices that cause unnecessary suffering and that are unhealthy are something that we should all be doing. And eventually we could genetically engineer animals so that they don't suffer as a transition to having completely neuron-free meat. But in the short term, I don't consider it one of the big ethical issues I'm working on. What do you think of, there are alleles out there like the SCN9A, Joe Cameron in the UK has microdeletions in FA. These could be means of taking the existing population of factory farm animals and at least, you know, in the case of SCN9A, making them incapable of feeling uh, physical pain. In the case of FA, potentially alleviating a great deal of their emotional higher order suffering. What do you think of those interventions? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm talking about is we should pursue all those lines of research. Speaking of Buddhist meditation, is the goal fundamentally a particular non-psychotic form of depersonalization, derealization disorder? In the Buddhist tradition, we have all different kinds of meditation for all different kinds of purposes. We have discursive forms of meditation. We have concentration. 
open awareness, devotional forms of meditation in the Mahayana traditions. Meditation is a pretty broad term, and I think it has many different kinds of application. And now we've begun to have sufficient psychological research that we're beyond the meditation does everything good and shines your shoes to maybe sometimes people with certain kinds of minds have to watch out for doing particular kinds of meditation. But I think in terms of the way that mindfulness schools, Zen, Vipassana, and Tibetan meditation have spread in the United States, the focus has been primarily on freeing yourself, what I call transcendence, freeing yourself from the selfing, from the default mode network in your brain and experiencing a depersonalization. Yes, absolutely. Which is why it's related to psychedelic research because psychedelics appear to do a lot of the same work, at least temporarily. Why does it matter if someone is mindful if they no longer identify with what is experienced? It's a good question. I think you're saying if you lose your sense of self and identification, but you're not paying attention, is it bad? I think it gets back again to our flourishing life thing. The goal, I think, is not to be a vegetable. I have had occasionally through meditation experiences of depersonalization where I lost boundaries of the body, for instance, and identified with my spaciousness. If I was unable to get up from that state and do anything, <laughs> then I wouldn't have considered that positive an experience. This is like the 10 ox herding pictures in Zen. The kid finds the bull, ropes the bull, rides the bull, and then everything disappears. But then it all comes back. And the kid remembers the experience of nirvana or depersonalization. But the final picture in the 10 ox herding pictures is riding back into town on the bull. Because once you've mastered your mind and had that taste of freedom, then you have an obligation to go back to your life and just do it a different way. Might matter if you're asking a Theravada Buddhist or a Mahayana Buddhist. Yeah, there's always been this question. The Mahayana tradition emphasizes going back to town a lot more than the Theravadins do. But I think we overemphasize meditation in our understanding of the Buddhist tradition because I was ordained as a Theravadan monk in Sri Lanka. And I can tell you, in no Buddhist societies have the majority of monks practiced meditation or actively worked to achieve enlightenment. They often see the goal of meditation in terms of more pastoral functions. And the goal for ordinary lay people it was pretty sparse in the Buddhist canon, but it was basically be nice to people, don't be a jerk. So Yes, I think the soteriological goal of Buddhism is to be completely depersonalized and zoned out. And the Theravadins emphasize that in a different way than the Mahayanas did. But in ordinary practice, it has a lot more to do with living a good life. So for practical reasons, we still live in an imperfect world with lots of suffering. We need to do something about that. And if you go to the pure land or wherever in your mind and you escape all of that, then you're not able to do anything constructive here. But separate from those practical considerations, if one were to fully experience in a sustainable, long-term way, this depersonalization, would it matter if they were still paying attention to their breath, for example? No. And I think some of the psychological research that's been done on long-term meditators, Shinzen Young, for instance, has collaborated with folks who have put him through fMRI scanners while he's done different kinds of meditation. And what they find is that beginning concentration or open awareness, Zen meditators, 
are doing a lot more work in their brain to achieve that state. But a uh, practiced practitioner like Shinzen Young basically is just there. Uh, they're able to think and have the benefits of the depersonalized spacious experience at the same time. And I think that's what I'm talking about is that you don't want to just hang out in attachment to oneness or nothingness. That's actually considered a mental trap in the Buddhist tradition that you have to avoid. You want to be able to do stuff while you're in that state. I'm going to be interviewing Shinzen next week. Any questions you have for him? <laughs> I've never been a part of his sangha, but I presume that Shinzen Young is thriving in this environment because he was one of the pioneers of distance meditation instruction and distance meditation retreats and all that kind of stuff. So I'm hoping that his sangha is thriving in this new context. Let's talk for a moment about what you've said about proprioception disruption. Why is this experience useful in terms of augmenting one's hedonic set point, or is it more of a moral enhancement? I think it does both things. The existential effect is that you begin to realize that there's more going on in the world than just you or the fiction that you're constantly creating of you. And that's the relationship to the default mode network that we're constantly slipping into thinking about our past, present, and future. In terms of personality types, the neuroticism setting that we're born with is the degree to which we're constantly ruminating about things and about ourselves. And that's the principal correlate of unhappiness. And so the degree to which you can give people a taste of what it's like to not constantly be thinking about themselves through meditation, psychedelics, ecstatic experiences, whatever it is, that allows them to step out and have some freedom from that. But the moral effect, at least the Buddhist hypothesis, so there's still, I think, some empirical research to be done on this, but there does seem to be a relationship between overcoming self-rumination and your capacity, for instance, paying attention to other people's needs and feelings. It's hard to be a social, emotionally intelligent person paying attention to context and other people's needs if you're only thinking about yourself. So I do think that there are some moral effects there as well. And as well as having introspection into your own biases and the way that your own mind works helps you overcome confirmation bias and so forth. Regarding the relationship between proprioception and this, in a larger sense, derealization. Does having this experience while, say, getting your finger pricked or a major surgical procedure or something very painful opt you out of the higher order suffering that would normally be associated with one of these tissue damaging events? Yeah, I think one of the very frequent and common experiences for people who practice intense meditation, if you sit in any posture for longer than 20, 25 minutes, your legs are probably going to fall asleep, your back's probably going to hurt. And if you try to sit through those experiences, it begins to give you a taste of what it's like to say, oh, yes, my leg's asleep. I know I'm not going to die. I'm not on fire. It hurts, but I'm going to stay here concentrating and not move and just investigate what it's like to be with this experience. And what we find is that's why meditation helps people with chronic pain. I have tinnitus. I took a bunch of antibiotics 20 years ago for a condition. It gave me tinnitus in my left ear. And for the first couple of years, it was a horrifying experience. I really was depressed about it because every time I sat down, there was this high whine in my ear. But over time, 
meditation practice helped me contextualize that experience is, yes, there's a high whine in your ear, but you can also feel your entire body. And the difference between those two experiences is not really that great. The fact that you can feel your knee while you're meditating and hear something in your ear while you're meditating, pretty much the same thing. And when you can then extrapolate that to other aversive experiences, that's when you really begin to have this sense of liberation from pain. One of the ways it was explained to me that really struck a chord was you learn to not draw a line between things that are happening outside your body and within your body. So if you're having loud, obtrusive thoughts, that's really no different than somebody in the next room banging pans together. And you're just supposed to watch that and not get too upset about it. Both are hella annoying while you're meditating in a similar way. I find it very difficult to meditate when people are talking in my environment because that immediately brings up at UMass Boston, our meditation group meets in the interfaith facility. And it's right next to where the unions have their lunchtime meetings. So we've had to meditate occasionally while someone on a speaker system in the next room was talking about how university was about to financially collapse. That's a very aversive situation to meditate in. But in the end, as you say, it's not that different as sitting there worrying about your university collapsing as it is to hear somebody talking about it. Yeah, I find it much harder to shut out a single conversation between two or three people than a cacophony of conversation, say, in a cafeteria. It's very hard not to get pulled into the story. A crowd can actually be a concentrative experience, as yeah. I experience it, because it, it creates a white noise. Yeah, definitely. You said something really interesting in an interview in 2016. I listened to it on YouTube. And you said that plastic surgery is something that improves reports of long-term subjective well-being. I would tend to think this would have a reinforcing effect on one's identification with their body and appearance. How do you square this with your view that proprioceptive dissociation also increases well-being? Long-term subjective well-being doesn't necessarily mean being mentally free and liberated in the way that we talk about in Buddhism. It's just what makes you miserable. So if you have a big birthmark on your face and you really are attached to not having a big birthmark on your face and it's a problem in your social life, having that removed can really improve your daily mental health. I've always had a weight problem. I would love to be in a total fat acceptance frame of mind where I didn't care at all about how my body looks, but for both health reasons and for personal vanity, I do. And so I think one of the things that people get confused about is that Buddhism doesn't say you have to not care about anything. It says that the way that you care about things is important. If I got up every single morning and was absolutely miserable because I wasn't on the scale where I wanted to be, then that would be attachment to my weight. But if I use my broad dissatisfaction with being overweight to motivate me, as I do now, attempt to do intermittent fasting, that's in fact a good way to approach life. Until we die, we're all going to care about things. And it's not a matter of caring about those things. It's a matter about how we care about them. Now, this was just one study, that one that you referenced, uh, that was done, I think, 10, 12 years ago. But I think it is interesting that we're in a society where we think it's pure vanity for people to get plastic surgery. And there are societies like South Korea and Brazil, where there's a very high rate of ordinary working class people saving up their pennies so they can get a nose job or a tummy tuck. And I'm not sure that those are healthy cultural trends. 
But I think we have to treat it on a case-by-case basis about whether it's really psychologically advisable for people to do these things. Obviously, there is body dysmorphia at one end of the spectrum. There's the people who really disfigure themselves with these kinds of practices. But an ordinary facial surgery or something like that may, in fact, be what people require in the moment. I find with myself, if I go to the gym, I have the big mirrors set up. It's impossible not to compare the way you look to other people, even if you think you look better than other people. And I wonder if just participating in that type of thought, just engaging with it, could be harmful to somebody on, say, a path of trying to have these proprioceptive dissociative experiences, trying to reach an ideal that was more similar to the Buddhist derealization. Here's the way I think about that. I'm acutely aware. I'm five foot eight and overweight, as I said. And so I'm acutely aware whenever I'm around other men, how tall are they and how fat are they? If they're fatter than me, I notice my mind saying, that guy's fatter than me. And if they're taller than me, I'm like, oh, that guy's taller than me. But I'm aware of those thoughts, usually. And so I don't think the point is to say, oh, bad mind, you're comparing yourself to other (laughs) people. It's to say, be aware, let it go, and don't focus on it. So just accepting that you are going to either feel superior or inferior to other people for a moment, but the point is to not keep it going longer than it needs to, driving in deeper grooves in your connection. If you get in the habit of just letting it go, eventually it might not happen at all, but don't beat yourself up if it continues to happen. Sure. And I wonder with these surgeries, this happens a lot in Korea, they want to make their eyes look more Caucasian. And this might be good for that one person, but think about what that does to their society when only the elite actors, people in positions of power have these types of eyes. It seems like it would be worse from a hedonic standpoint, from a eudaimonic standpoint, that this is even a dynamic in the culture. The distinction there is important, and it gets back to our discussion of capabilities. If your public policy is to give everybody what they think they want, then you'd have a libertarian society and everybody could have as much plastic surgery as they want. But if your society is a broader conception of human flourishing in which you recognize that there's a problem with people getting too much plastic surgery, that's a more eudaimonic measure for public policy. And I think you should have some of those. This has been part of my argument with the libertarian transhumanists is that if you have a completely self-centered, non-judgmental approach to everybody's goals and desires, then you end up in some very peculiar places, like everybody lying in the street with a needle in their arm. But we have to, if we're going to have a functioning society, have a broader and more specific standard of what a flourishing personality is. I'm an opponent of most drug decriminalization. I think it's had a terrible public health effect and it's contributed to our carceral state and so forth. But I am worried that we might have super drugs in the future that would be, you take it once and that's the end. So we need to have a model of public policy that says we don't want everybody lying on the street with a needle. In their yeah, it's funny. That was my next question. Should people be able to get any hedonic enhancement they want? I'm for the public health and safety regulation, and then I'm fairly libertarian after that. For instance, the most contentious debate, I think, in bioethics has been what should people be allowed to do to their children? And the term designer baby is usually considered the end of a conversation. Oh, you want designer babies. We fought hard so that people could control how many children that they were going to have and when they were going to have them. 
And now people are saying, oh, okay, that's the only choice you get. You don't get to choose hair color. You don't get to choose height. I have kids with some minor health issues. If I had known that they were going to have those health issues and I could have tweaked them so they didn't have those health issues, I would have considered that my obligation as a parent and to their long-term benefit. Now, there are certain kinds of tweaks that you could make to your kid, which would not be in their interest. And I think those should be the ones that the government should intervene in. Uh, so for instance, if you want to tweak your kid to never be able to give up your version of evangelical Christianity, because they couldn't think any thought other than evangelicism, that would be, in my opinion, a bad thing. I think we should ban that kind of a tweak. But most parents are interested in improving the health and longevity and mental capabilities of their children in ways that improve the child's self-determination, not in ways that diminish it. So at any rate, what I'm saying is allowing designer babies would improve parents' hedonic satisfaction, I think, in the long run. There'd be fewer parents who were thinking, oh my God, I should have not had this particular child, which is a terrible thing when it occurs, and slightly tweak their satisfaction in various dimensions. And I don't think it would hurt most children. But I do think that there are ways in which people can make choices, both parents and children, or people related to their own body, which society should step in and say, we don't think that this is a direction we should be going. Thinking very broadly, is genetic equality the final step in the march of liberalism? I think we fall into a trap of genetic determinism. We're finding that almost all of the things that we're really interested in maximizing are polygenic traits. We may have super CRISPR pills in the future that zap the top thousand genes that do intelligence or height or whatever for you. But I don't think we want to fall into too much genetic determinism, even with the kinds of personality traits and character settings that I'm concerned with in the Cyborg Buddha Project. It's only about 50% determinative if you're born with a gene that is highly neurotic or highly sociable, agreeableness, whatever the genes are. There are behavioral interventions, there are social conditions that can override whatever your internal settings are. And there's a whole school now of moral neuroscience and social theory called situationism, which says maybe there isn't such a thing as character at all, because this person has a high setting for courage, but it's only in these three contexts. And when they go over to this context, they are not courageous at all. So what does it mean to be a courageous person or to have a genetic setting for courage? So I wouldn't go so far as to say that once we get everybody's genes tweaked optimally, that's the end of equality. And I also wouldn't go there because I think property is pretty central to equality. I think we have to crack the nut of creating a society in which we don't have the extremes of wealth and poverty that we have in the world today. Insofar as genes and other biological phenomena are property or quasi-property, and if we just assume a situation where maybe we've gotten rid of other unfair things in political economy, if you are born with pygmy genes, you're probably not going to be able to play in the NBA. There's a slim chance that you could. And of course, you might have an advantage over somebody with stellar, super tall genes who isn't fed well. But for all intents and purposes, that person has a huge advantage over you in our basketball economy. This is an argument I made in Citizen Cyborg that 
transhumanist technologies in general and genetic engineering in particular had to be one component of our understanding of an egalitarian future. So this has been part of my argument with the disability rights movement, or at least the extreme version of the disability rights movement. We had in the future a pill that you could give to people to overcome mental deficits or a pill to allow people who are wheelchair bound to walk or a pill that could allow the deaf to hear. How many people with those disabilities in our world would say, oh, I don't need that, thanks anyway, because we've created enough wheelchair ramps and I have enough other entertainments. I've adapted to my situation. Almost all disabled people in the world would say, I find it an intrinsic enhancement of my life that I can now hear or that I could now see, et cetera. Even though we want society to be as supportive of all different life modalities as possible, it's still intrinsically better to be able to see than not, and most people who are blind would choose to see. So it's only a real extreme version of disability rights that says that's ableist to even think about trying to fix disabilities. So in the same way, having a society in which you are self-diagnosed, ADD is an example of that. I was diagnosed with ADD as a kid getting in fights all the time and I wasn't learning to read. I was put on stimulant medications and special ed and I eventually learned to read and I don't fight with people all the time. It would be great to have a society where you diagnose a kid with ADD and you say, what's really good for you? You should be a sheep herder. But that's not the society that we live in. We live in a society where self-control is an essential part of living with other people and learning to read and, and those kinds of capacities are important. So we want people to have technologies which allow them to tweak themselves to fit some of these social expectations and needs. Let's talk more about pain and suffering. Are monks able to self-immolate without suffering? I have never given a lot of thought to that particular question. Buddhism is hostile to the idea of suicide, although there are traditions within Buddhism that portray self-chosen death in a relatively positive way. So for instance, the Zen tradition has lots of death poem stories. The monk sat in meditation for three days and then said, ah, the taste of strawberries and then keeled over. So in ways in which people celebrate a self-chosen death, but it's not pouring gasoline over yourself. The Vietnamese example of that, which led to many copycats, was a particularly extreme political protest. But at any rate, the fact that some of the monks who have self-emulated have displayed extraordinary physical discipline and not moving about and appearing to be in some kind of zoned out state while they did that does suggest the broader capabilities of meditation of a trained mind to look past extreme forms of pain. But I would highly discourage self-immolation. Sure. <laughs> it's not a good practice. And the, the reason I ask about it isn't because I have any kind of statement to make or I'm encouraging others to do, but it is a powerful edge case that can demonstrate some rules about how the brain works. And especially if we wanted to undertake this project of minimizing suffering, then we might want to understand how people are able to do it in a somewhat of a top-down volitional manner for a particular purpose. Because if one could opt out of suffering at any moment like that, then maybe we could be more morally courageous in all kinds of situations. One of the goals of the Cyborg Buddha idea is that we don't want to set up expectations that people have to do extraordinary ascetic 
unusual practices in order to achieve the good life. I often give the examples. If you want to climb Mount Everest without an oxygen mask in your bare feet or whatever, go for it. But for most of us, if we wanted to see the summit of Mount Everest, it's going to be a hell of a lot easier if we have a helicopter or whatever. I think most of us need a democratized experience of something like the capacity to be free from extraordinary pain, chronic pain. And that comes from drugs for the most part, although now we have electronic devices that can interfere with neural signaling. And all these are good non-addictive forms of pain cancellation, I think, are the democratization of what we otherwise would need to do 20 years of meditation practice yeah. to try to experience. I think about how to deploy this in the most egalitarian manner, even to animals in the wild, without it having deleterious effects on evolution, for example, because I don't really care if one species continues and other doesn't, for instance, but it's more that can you make this an evolutionarily stable trait so that suffering isn't, say, reintroduced? If we make some genetic edits that allow people to opt out of extreme pain and in other animals. So that's why I'm interested. It's specifically an issue of efficient deployment and imagining these genes being present in organisms that are hundreds of generations out from the progenitor. I'm a fan, at least in the abstract, of David Pierce's vision of re-engineering the animal kingdom so that there were no more predators, that the lamb lies down with the lion and so forth. But one version of that could be just to engineer all lambs to be like the cow in <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that really enjoys being eaten. If we can't get the lion not to eat the lamb, at least make the lamb really experience that as the greatest thing that they could possibly do. In fact, there is a Buddhist Jataka tale where the Buddha is a deer and he throws himself as a deer on the fire of a hungry hunter. And his act of self-sacrifice is considered part of his spiritual advancement. I consider that a dystopian view of what kinds of tweaks we could do to the natural kingdom. But getting rid of all predator-prey relationships is probably equally dystopian for some other reasons. I think more of my concern about animal welfare, as we talked about earlier, is about animals that we have in captivity, domesticated animals, and so forth, and reducing their suffering. I'm ready to leave the natural world to its own devices for the time being. But isn't the main purpose of Buddhism to give all beings a life without suffering? Yeah, and I imagine a world of ubiquitous nanotechnology will allow us to do things that are currently considered science fictional, such as tweak the brains of all animals, or at least keep track of them all. But I think this is a question of meta-ethics. And one of the reasons why I tried to articulate different obligations to different kinds of minds, because I don't consider reducing the pain of every mosquito to be equivalent to reducing the pain of great apes. Obviously, great apes are an endangered species. I would be for arming them all, allow them to start shooting back at poachers. And certainly having the capacity for ubiquitous surveillance of every endangered species would be one immediate goal. And then if we found that they were being eaten by a particular predator and we had a way to tweak all those predators not to eat our endangered species. Yeah, let's go for that too. But I just don't see spreading a no pain virus in the natural world as necessarily something that we would even understand what the consequences of it would be. And I, I think we'd be disappointed with the world it creates. 
Well, we probably wouldn't if <laughs> we were blissed. If it affected us, yeah, we'd be perfectly happy with whatever consequences. Are- yeah, and maybe we should actually discount what our current selves would say about that. But I agree with you in the sense that I have this amygdalic response to the idea that we could create lambs that enjoy being eaten by a lion. But I think that I have to concede that if those lambs were blissful while doing that, and then it somehow wasn't leading to a local maxima in terms of what all creatures could experience, then I would say that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that situation, even if it conflicts with the values that I was brought up with in my Milu. I think this touches on a God-level meta-ethics question. If we get to be smart enough, really think about what's the end goal of the universe. And you see this in some science fiction. It's like the old ones who think that only conflict advances intelligence in the universe versus the old ones who think that only cooperation does it. I just don't know if we have enough consensus or even in any one of our minds yet to figure out what is the long-term purpose and intentionality that we want to give to the evolutionary process? Does removing all predator-prey relationships, does making every species intrinsically happy with their situation really move the ball in the direction that we want to move it? What is that direction in the first place? I think that's part of the question. Yeah, and I'd love for you to tell me why you think my preference is wrong just so I can get some valuable critique. That's what I'm saying. I can't tell you that it's wrong because I don't have a firm meta-ethics position. In other words, I don't think that the universe has rules written on its base. Even if we discovered that we were in a simulated universe, this is part of the question of theology is that even if you discover there is a God and God wanted you to do X, are you morally obliged to do X? What if that thing is something that you think is morally wrong? And so I don't think we have any consensus about what these long-term goals are. What if species that are much more advanced than us, their goals are simply aesthetic? They don't have any right and wrong ideas. They just have beautiful and unbeautiful. And beautiful to them means natural ecosystems functioning as they evolve to function instead of being tweaked in the way that we want to tweak them. I can't tell you that my moral code is defensible. It's situated in a 20th century utilitarian, Western, liberal, American, Unitarian, Buddhist framework. And all of those things are things that probably in a hundred years we will have transcended in various ways. And our descendants will look back on our moral codes as being completely inadequate and silly. Yeah, I think that our codes right now are pretty silly. And I imagine if we are reaching for higher and higher levels of emotional well-being, the only thing that matters at the end of it, and the only way that we can actually define what is better and worse is in terms of the hedonic effects. Even at present, the only way that we can conceive of something as good or bad is in terms of the way that makes us feel emotionally, specifically on the plane of valence. This is actually what some people have proposed as the answer to the Fermi paradox is that why don't we see other species in the universe when they should be zipping all around? They may have blown themselves up or they may have discovered their hedonic buttons and just started pressing it and then sunk into oblivion, turned into vegetables or stay glued in their VR headsets and never yeah. wanted to explore the universe. And that's I mean, bad if they don't go on interstellar rescue missions to save creatures like us. But if that's what we all did, I wouldn't think that would be bad. Because of the obligation of compassion. 
But your intuition there is interesting. It's the same intuition, the debate between the Mahayanas and the, the Theravadans is, should the Buddha, when he achieves enlightenment, get up and do anything? Once he zips out, once he achieved enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, why would he ever leave? Yeah. Why not just uh, stay there until he died? Because he had an obligation, even if it meant putting himself to some dis-ease by having to go around and convince stupid people to change their lives. Yeah, we agree in that much. But I'm saying if you could create a coordinated intergalactic effort in which all the creatures that could ever possibly exist and will ever exist got together and said, let's wirehead until we die. Yeah. It's disgusting to me as a skull-bound human being to think this way, but I honestly can't argue with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you say, my response to that scenario is driven by my amygdala and my disease with certain kinds of dystopian worldviews. The land of the lotus eaters is not an attractive place for this particular Odysseus to land. But I don't have a strong meta-ethical argument against it. I think most of us would agree that we'd rather not live that Yeah. Way. I mean, I'm moving the Overton window here just to illustrate that the things that we somewhat capriciously apply pleasure glass to aren't really what's intrinsically important. And I'm willing to accept the repugnant conclusion if forced to, because I think that my amygdalic architecture isn't sophisticated enough to deal with these radical thought experiments. My personal vision, one that simultaneously agrees with the ethics of both my cerebrum and amygdala, is our future as an adventurous, inquisitive, spacefaring civilization, spreading compassion and bliss throughout the universe. Buddhist Star Trek, if you will. If that sort of option isn't on the table, though, then I'm willing to give up certain sacred cows and intentional objects because suffering and pleasure is what ultimately matters. The way it's often framed in philosophy is what if we could have tweaked Sisyphus to really enjoy rolling that rock? And I think most people have an aversive response to that. <laughs> Of course, but the more I thought about it, I'm okay with that. As long as that isn't going to cause a decrease in the net utility of the universe from now till the end of time. What does it mean to have a universe that might have a net utility function at its end? I think this is where theology and astro astrophysics and quantum theory all converge, like the paper that came out last week that perhaps tongue-in-cheek, but at least suggested that if the universe has a fundamental consciousness in all matter and quantum states collapse because of an observer, maybe the universe is constantly ginning itself up by observing itself. And we're just tiny little nodes of that self-awareness of the universe. That's basically a kind of theological conception. And if you go there, then what does it mean for the whole universe to wake up and be happy and have a flourishing life? It might not have anything to do with our individual well-being or the way that we conceive of individual utility. Get to some more practical manners, because I think we exhausted that one. <laughs> At least as far as we could, with our tiny human minds. With our tiny human brains. Thinking about extreme pain control, maybe not level of self-immolation, but what's your best guess at if somebody wanted to optimize their practice specifically for withstanding large degrees of pain, not necessarily subjecting themselves to those painful things, but just to give themselves the ability, what would they practice? There's two basic kinds of meditation that would be relevant. One would be concentration forms of meditation. There are many different kinds of concentration objects. The most common in Western Buddhism is the breath. 
but there's also uh, mantra, various kinds of combinations of ecstatic experience. In the Hindu tradition, you have ecstatic chanting and dance. I started actually with Tibetans when I was in high school, and I still find mantra and visualization practice useful, even though I don't find much use for the rest of Tibetan Buddhism anymore. But I think there are many different kinds of concentration objects that could allow you to focus on something other than the pain. And then once you have a sufficient amount of mental discipline, you can broaden that out into the spacious awareness that we were talking about earlier, where you are able to note all sensory phenomena, note thoughts coming through your mind and so forth. You're not trying to suppress them with a concentration object, but you have this kind of spacious mind that allows those things to just pass through. And that's what I was talking about with the tinnitus in my ear. When I meditate now, when I note the tinnitus, it just is, yeah, that's there, my knees are there, my head's there, and so forth. And when you get to that point with your practice, then you can begin to be non-reactive to increasingly aversive stimuli. I don't think I'm as concerned about being reactive. I don't want to act in ways that are hurtful to other people. But even if I'm sitting there looking stoic, I don't want to be suffering internally. How can you use these techniques to dial down the pain? And what would you practice over and over again if you were, say, preparing for, I don't want to pick self-immolation because then we have to give all these caveats about how people shouldn't do that. But I think you get my point. <laughs> well, I would say then uh, concentration meditation, the degree to which you can keep your mind on one thing and zone out. And we've seen this in the neuropsychophysiological research, for instance, the difference between yogic meditations and Buddhist meditation, especially Zen, is trying to get you to that open, spacious mindfulness where you note sensation, but let it go. Yogic meditation, back in the 70s, people showed that if you hook up experienced yogis with EEGs and you hook up Zen masters with EEGs and you start ringing a bell, the yoga practitioner, there's never a blip in their EEG noting that they heard the bell. And with the Zen practitioner, they hear every bell without habituating to it, and each bell is a new bell. And the ordinary person hears the first bell, then less the second bell, the th less the third bell, and so forth. So I think that's illustrative of the general point, that concentration practices can allow you to not experience things. And it strikes me that this might be the difference between, say, yogic schools and Buddhist schools, as well as hypnosis. Because from what I can tell about hypnosis, and I know you're less familiar with this, is that you are trying to get somebody lost in an imagery that would not allow them to respond to the bell. With Buddhism's emphasis on mindfulness, awareness, not getting it attached to any sensory stimuli coming in, is it almost in conflict with the dogma to practice these more hypnotic or yogic techniques? Yeah, and as I said, Buddhism has a hierarchy of meditative experiences, a roadmap that says, and don't stay there, and don't stay there, and don't stay there, and don't stay there, and the end goal is this one. And the places that it cautions against, the boundless states that it says you might get trapped in, are oneness with everything, absorption into emptiness, etc. Yeah, I think there's a pretty clear message in Buddhism that the concentration is only a foundation for mental discipline, and the real goal is a lot of other stuff. Do you agree with that? 
Yeah, I do. <laughs> As it goes back to the beginning of the conversation, what do we think the good life is? I'll tell you a personal story about this. When I was 19, I was in a car accident. My mother died in the car accident. My brother was severely injured and I was in the hospital for about two weeks. And I had been involved for a couple of years with Tibetan Buddhists in high school. They all came up to the hospital. They brought pictures of the Kagyu Rinpoche and the beads and everything, which blew the mind of the tiny country hospital I was in. And I thought I had an obligation as a good Buddhist to not feel. And so I practiced the shit out of my Tibetan Buddhist practices, mantra, visualization. And I tried to put on an example of what a good Buddhist responds to intense personal suffering with. Three years later, my brother says offhandedly to me, I wish mom was here to experience this. And I dissolve into tears. And it's because I had used these practices to dissociate from my emotional states and to not acknowledge the reality of my feelings. And I really needed to get past that and integrate that experience. And I think that's a part of the Buddhist understanding of emotional growth and health is not to suppress things with concentration, but to allow your mind to integrate and then transcend these experiences. Wow, that's a really powerful story. Thanks for, for sharing. How would you compare that to say if one fell off a one-story or a two-story building and survived and you know, shattered their legs? It would seem better to me to totally opt out of any kind of suffering associated with the physical sensations in the fall itself. I don't want to have my sensitivity turned all the way up. Now, in the recovery phase, when I'm coming to terms with what happened maybe I'm not going to be able to run a marathon anymore or, or play basketball. I don't want to stay in the totally numb mindset because then I'm just delaying later suffering. So isn't there a place for an interplay between getting lost in the imagery, opting out totally and mindfulness? Just let me digress for a second, sure. because it's interesting that you use that example of disability, because one of the big debates in the hedonic research or the well-being research over the last 30 years has been, what is the effect of a disability on happiness? Right. And one of the classic studies back in 1978 was a comparison of lottery winners and people who had been in accidents and become quadriplegic. And of course... The quadriplegics were unhappy for a while, and then the research suggested they returned to their happiness set point, and the lottery winners were happier, more or less, for a while, and then they returned to their happiness set point. Now, there's been a lot of research since then that have suggested on the wealth side of things that there is a persistent benefit to being richer than poorer which I don't think many of us would disagree with. It's a lot easier to have a million dollars than just to have 10. And there's fewer things to worry about in your life. But there is an inflection point at about $75,000, $80,000 in the United States at which there's diminishing returns from wealth to your satisfaction or your sense of life accomplishment or whatever we're asking about. In terms of having disabilities, similarly, yes, people drift back to an acceptance and a hedonic adaptation to whatever circumstance they're in. Most people with disabilities don't want to commit suicide because they don't think that their life is without meaning. But in general, people with disabilities 
especially those who experience sudden disabling events, are persistently less happy than those who aren't. Okay, so back to your question, what's the ideal way for somebody who experiences a sudden disability to adapt to their situation? I think we mostly would agree that someone should try to find as much meaning and happiness in whatever life circumstance that they're in, and that we want to train people in the forms of mental resilience. This is another whole area of research is not just what are the practices, but why are some brains stickier than others? Why do Mm. some brains not return to a happiness set point or not be able to overcome disabling life events. There was a study about 10 years ago now that looked at adult survivors of child sexual abuse. And it was very controversial because it showed that only about a third of adult survivors had long-term psychological sequelae. That means that two-thirds of people had a sufficient mental resilience to find meaning in their life and not be constantly affected by those experiences. And even though we want to eliminate all those bad things that happen to people that cause them to have psychological trauma, we also want people to have psychological resilience so that they can overcome all the bad, aversive events in their life, including disabilities. It makes me think that there are particular biological phenomena that we could adjust that would give people the ability to, in a sense, become enlightened through genetic engineering. Maybe we're not talking about, on a gross level, amping up their opioids, but say increasing the activity of the anterior cingulate cortex. I don't know what the particular therapy would be, but my point is that you have specific brain areas or modalities that augment one's ability to be mindful Taking this into account, what are the most promising avenues for abolishing suffering through higher order mechanisms as opposed to just creating endogenous lotus eater brains? It goes back to my broader conception of what human character is and what the Buddhist path involves. If you look at the Eightfold Path or the Buddhist instructions on how to live a good life, As with most traditions, it starts with self-control. Don't do this, don't do that. Try to overcome your addiction to that. Most of us do not have the degree of self-control that we would like. And when we look at the self-control settings that people are naturally endowed with, there's hardly any downside to having too much self-control. It's the only virtue where it's hard to get too much of it. Isn't that what neuroticism is, though? Just being worried about everything and not being able to disinhibit your social inhibitions, for example, at a party that's not very virtuous? So self-control is your capacity to, for instance, switch from one task to another. Your ability to defer gratification so that you can pursue a new life course. Yes, we do often conflate thinking about yourself and thinking about your future with those things. But really, the Zen version of that is that you can do all that without a lot of thinking. Once your mind is free of the hindrances that keep you from exercising the kind of self-control, the kinds of addictions and so forth, you actually are happier and freer. And it's a very separate thing from whether you're thinking about yourself. In fact, thinking about yourself can keep you from doing the things that you really want to do. So self-control is, I think, an important virtue, and it's one of the few that it's hard to get too much of. Compassion is more in the Aristotelian sense, one where there's a golden mean, because we don't want people to be so 
empathetic that it makes them suffer or that they are incapable of being actually effective in understanding other people. But we also don't want them to be psychopaths or people who are completely free of empathetic understanding or social emotional intelligence. Intelligence, the ability to make good decisions, practical wisdom, as Aristotle would have said, all these are important components of what a true flourishing eudaimonic understanding of happiness would be. All of them have specific neuropsychological settings that we're born with that predetermine our capacities for that particular virtue. And hopefully we will have drugs, devices, gene therapies in the future that allow us all to tweak them in a more optimal direction, not too much, not too little. Just empathy, the pushback on empathy over the last 15 years. If I had finished Cyborg Buddha 15 years ago, I would have said all these wonderful things about oxytocin. Now that we know more about oxytocin, it turns out it's not just a cuddle hormone that makes you nice to everybody. It makes you more racist because it makes you trust people who are like you. It taps into a deep part of our monkey brain that says, okay, now it's time to circle the wagons. Trust your fellow monkey, but hate those other outgroup people. And that's not where we're headed for at all. So I think we're still beginning to understand what the neurophysiological, neurogenetic things are that determine and establish the capacities for these different kinds of virtues. And we can't dismiss behavioral intervention. There's the famous story of California neuroscientist who was researching psychopaths and serial killers and accidentally got his own brain scan mixed up in the pile and discovered that he was a psychopath. He was one of the most extreme psychopaths he'd ever seen. But he theorized from that there are lots of psychopaths among us and some have been able to be socialized in a way so that they never hurt anybody. They may in fact not care about other people's feelings, but they learned how to fake it. So I think we can't dismiss the powerful effects that social behavioral interventions and training and living in a good society can have on making sure that people, even with bad neurophysiological settings, live good lives. So you don't think that enlightenment can be genetically engineered? I think if you think that enlightenment being genetically engineered means turning on some setting so that you have one experience throughout your entire life, I don't think that's it. I think the understanding of what an enlightened mind is a far more complicated set of interlocking gears, at least in the Buddhist conception. Certainly having an experience of transcendence is uh, key. It's integral. It unlocks a lot of other stuff, but you can't walk around and do stuff in that experience of transcendence. You have to come back to earth and have that taste in the back of your mind, have that spaciousness in the back of your mind, but then also go about your daily affairs. At least that's what the Buddhists would say about it. Now, there are many different traditions, and there are certainly ascetic traditions in Buddhism that would say, well, if you get to that state, just stay there until you die. But that's not the way most Buddhists approach it. What do you think the best biomarker for one's meditational progress is? I've played around with Muse and the other brain monitoring devices, and basically they tell you whether you're meditating or not, and I already knew that. I don't find that they're terribly sensitive to whether it was a good sit or a bad sit. You can have a very energetic, strenuous sit where you come out of it feeling very ennobled by <laughs> the work that you did. And the muse would say, you were thinking too much. Yeah, but I was doing all this work. There are all these thoughts that I noticed and let go of and all that kind of mm. stuff. 
versus just sitting there not doing anything for a while, then that says you had a good sit. So I don't know that those neurophysiological measures are quite where they need to be. I think we have to have a broader understanding of what we're supposed to be doing on the cushion. And some of the research on what kind of people should not meditate suggests that people who have certain kinds of obsessive or anxiety disorders can use meditation practices the way I suggested I used it when my mother died to suppress or to get into really deep meditative states that are dysfunctional in various ways. So that's the other end of it. I think you should probably just ask everybody around you, you think I'm improving or am I still an asshole? And if they think you're improving, that's one good measure. The eudaimonic measures that we've been developing in psychological research, it used to be that we would just ask people, are you happy or not? And now Gallup asks people all around the world every year a series of questions. One is, are you happy or not? But also, do you think that you're achieving your life's goals? And then they say, in the last 24 hours, how many times did you cry? In the last 24 hours, how many times did you laugh? A whole series of emotional, in-the-moment questions. And the disaggregation of those different kinds of mental states that you can have, you can say, oh, yeah, I'm happy. But yeah, in the last 24 hours, I was crying an awful lot. It's important that we recognize the distinction between those two. Does the fact that you were crying mean that you weren't really happy? What does it mean for you to be happy? I often give the example of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa probably woke up every day and thought, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm so glad I get to do it. But do we know that she was really happy? She didn't look that happy. And does it really matter if she was really happy? She thought she was living a life of meaning. And I think in the long run, that's what the eudaimonia points us to, is that what we really want is to live a life of meaning, not just a life of pleasure. And we find that the people, if you ask them, what are your goals in life? And they say, oh, to live a life of pleasure, turns out they're the least happy people. So I think we need to have a much broader conception of how to measure what the goal is. Would you say you're an open individualist or an empty individualist? What do you mean by that? The way I understand these terms is that open individualism is the idea that consciousness in the universe is just one thing. And if you imagine universal consciousness is like the Google server, we all have our own individual Gmails that partition our email addresses from one another, but they're really just all connected. And then the empty individualist viewpoint is that we're just time slices that instantaneously come into existence precisely when they pop out of existence. And these are alternatives to the closed individualist perspective, which is that who I am is the person that came out of my mother and goes in the ground when I die. And that's it. I guess I'm someplace in between because I think it's clear that the experience of self is something that is real, but it is not ontologically real. And that, that's a key Buddhist insight. It's not that you don't really exist or that you're not a person who makes decisions over time or you don't have persistent thoughts and feelings and so forth. It's just that when you really examine all that, there is no beginning or end or boundary or true continuity. There's no core self. There's no absolute Atman or substance that persists through all of that stuff that you're talking about as you. And once you understand that lack of ontological concreteness in the self, that can relate to a more panpsychic, 
understanding that all things are conscious to some extent. And it certainly relates to what's called extended mind theory, which is that if you experience dropping your cell phone in the toilet as a mini stroke, there's a reason for that. And that's because we've offloaded an awful lot of the mental functions onto our surrounding electronic exocortex. And is that a problem? Luddites think it's a terrible thing that we've suddenly become so dependent. The ancient Greeks complained that once people started to learn literacy, that they wouldn't memorize as many epic poems anymore. We act like people who don't read today are stupid or something like that. But I think Socrates would have been like, no, you're an idiot for reading. You have to remember these. Is it a problem that you have a calendar that records people's birthdays so you don't have to remember them all in your head? I don't think that's a problem. So I think that once we begin to understand that thinking and selfing is not just something that occurs in your head anymore, it's something that's part of your technological environment, then you can also say, what sense could one truly think or be a self if you didn't communicate with other people? So in some ways, that's the mirror self perspective. We're constantly framing ourselves in terms of our communication and understanding of other people. We're a part of a social world. We're a part of the natural world. There's this eventual seamlessness between your selfing and the thinking that's implicit in all things. So I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but from a Buddhist point of view, it's not to say you don't really think you're you. It's just that once you really examine it, there is no you to the you. Yeah, it strikes me that he just avoids the question of eternalism versus annihilationism and says, look, just be somewhere in between (laughs) because these are just wavy gravy concepts anyways. The important thing is to realize that this ego fiction that you have, it doesn't work that way and you need to let go of that and you'll be happier and you'll be nicer to other people if you think this way. Yeah, sounds right. You had a really good breakdown of the different viewpoints on personal identity somewhere on your website a few years ago. I asked this question on Facebook, if the self is illusory, then how isn't rebirth also illusory? Are you able to deliver those differences (laughs) in real time? Sure. I think you're thinking of the one I contributed to the transhumanist reader about transhumanist points of view on personal identity. But if I've been concerned with the issue of personal identity for a long time, I think most transhumanists have transcended a biological essentialism about personal identity because as we think about things like uploading or these other transhumanist possibilities, we want to embrace the notion that there could be radical changes in your biological substrate and you could have a persistence of personal identity. What they haven't given a lot of thought to is all the implications that has. If you upload yourself and then you download yourself five times, which one is the real you? There is no real you. And so people are just beginning to confront that. Ray Kurzweil's preferred position, which is the one that most transhumanists, I think, adopt is called patternism, that basically you Mm -hmm. are a pattern of memories, thoughts, feelings over time. But then, as I said, what if you start copying yourself? What if you merge your pattern with your wife's pattern? Does that make a new person? Or did you just kill yourself? What if you decide to edit all your traumatic memories? Did you just kill yourself? And there's this debate in bioethics that some bioethicists who are anti-transhumanists think a lot of these radical changes that we're proposing are forms of suicide for both individuals and for the human race. Now, people like Max Moore... His doctoral thesis was on the personal identity problem. 
his conclusion was that as long as you maintain the commitment to the same values, that person A could transform into person B and person B into person C. And if person C doesn't have any of the memories of the life of person A, they would still be the same person as long as they had the same values. I don't find that a very satisfactory answer because that means that I'm the same person as everybody who has my values. It really doesn't get you that much farther than the patternism perspective. Mark Walker, I think, has a slightly more plausible and practical approach. Mark is a philosopher out at New Mexico State, transhumanist, and he has argued that as long as you make gradual enough changes. So the question might be, if you upload and then a thousand years in the future, somebody downloads you into some new sleeve on another planet, would you consider that new experience to be a continuity with the previous one? And his intuition is that there are certain kinds of experiences that we might have, which would be so jarring that we would not experience them as continuity. And so it's more of a phenomenological approach to personal identity. It says, what we want is to have gradual change so that we see the person that we've become as continuous with the person we were. I think that makes some phenomenological sense, but it really doesn't move the ball in terms of, does that person own your property? Is that person still married to your wife? Which are some of the real practical questions that we're going to have to answer. So as I said, I'm more favorable towards a post-individual identity perspective that just says, look, let's acknowledge there is no real you. We need to make practical decisions in the real world, in the future. Terry Schiavo was one case I thought was interesting, and brain death in general. One of the first essays that got me involved with the transhumanist movement was I gave a paper in Cuba at a conference on the definition of death, where I said, look, in the, this is in the 90s, in the future, we're going to have nanotechnology, stem cell therapies, all kinds of stuff, so that our current definition of brain death, somebody whose brains turned entirely to water like Terry Schiavo's was, we're going to be able to go in there and put in a little artificial brain device and maybe some stem cells and some nanotech and boot that body back up. But if there's no memories left in that person of who Terry Schiavo was before, is that even a moral thing to do? And should we still treat that person as Terry Schiavo or is that a totally new individual person? And of course, we experience people around us all the time who have had severe brain injuries and our default is that's the same person, even if they have lost all their memories and capacities. But in the future, it's going to be much more acute a question, especially if we can copy, if we had a copy of what was going on in Terry Chavo's brain and put it in somebody else and then booted up her old body, which one's the real Terry Chavo, et cetera, all these thought experiments. So that paper that really brought me to the attention of Mark Walker and Nick Bostrom was about that question that we had to transcend our concrete notions of personal identity and come up with practical rules about how we deal with personal identity, but that don't reify inappropriately the concreteness of the self. And again, it's a question of metaethics. I can certainly imagine a godlike metaethic point of view in which all the parochial concerns that we have about equality and freedom and self-determination are laughable. <laughs> We've adopted some new standard, but yeah, I don't think I'm there yet. Thanks so much for listening from everyone here at the Invincible Wellbeing team. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help fuel the creation of more content, be sure to follow and like us on social media, comment, give us five stars on iTunes, you know the drill. 
If you're feeling particularly generous, you can donate to us. And if you or someone you know is interested in joining our team, we're currently recruiting for remote roles from research to editing and writing. Stay safe and see you in the next episode. Bye for now.